Welcome to Cottonmouth Manchester, a podcast brought to you by CityCo, the city centre management company for Manchester and Salford. I'm Vaughan Allen, the chief exec of CityCo, and I'm going to be joined once again by Eve Holt and Michael Taylor. This time we're mostly talking about the Mayor's recent Green Summit, climate change, the environment and all things to do with cities and greening. Uh, Before that, we dip into a brief set of conversations around social value, how corporates can contribute to the cityscape, what businesses are doing wrong, and Michael goes on a little rant about awards and award shows particularly, and also into the the local high street and the travails of the local high street. We'll be returning to that latter section and subject in the next podcast. Finally, as always, we have a little bit of fun selecting one thing that we'd each change around Manchester. And then finally, recommending a couple of books. It's meant to be one, but it turns out to be two, for, at least for Michael and myself, about Manchester or set in the city. I hope you enjoy the podcast. So we're back and in the Cotton Room in uh, City Co's wonderful new event spaces in the city centre available for hire through cityco.com slash events probably. It's not actually gone up yet but it'll go up in the next few days and probably before you see this podcast. Um, we are officially in Perda, aren't we? So this this actually will be going out two weeks after or thereabouts after the local elections. It may go up a couple of days before, but as long as we don't tell Councillor Eve, we will be all right with it, or any of the officers, I think. Um, we've got a few subjects to do to, to cover. We're going to try and whip through in under the hour and a half that we took last time, um, which is probably going to be good for your ears, I would think. Uh, big news story, obviously, nationally has been that B word that we don't want to talk about and we don't really want to cover or, or think about. Um, but there's also been a, a fair amount of press about things that are happening locally, particularly around how businesses are interacting with the city and its residents and visitors and things around retail and various other things. One of the big changes over the last few years has been an attempt by public authorities and indeed by businesses themselves to ensure that businesses are putting more back into their local towns and their local cities, particularly work in Preston around that. Um, work around the Social Value Act nationally, which actually allows public authorities to take into account how a business acts and how many people it employs locally and all of that sort of thing when awarding contracts. Um, Eve, what's on the horizon? How is this changing? Is it changing how local authorities act? I think it is absolutely shifting. I think maybe too slowly, I would say, but I think there is a real shift in recognising what needs to happen if we are going to have a truly inclusive economy um, that works for everybody. Um, So I think there's a few things, you know, very locally, we'll talk about what that means. So for me as a councillor in Chalton, for example, um, in terms of our local high street and district centres, um, but then also on a broader scale, you know, in terms of Greater Manchester. So um, I was at a conference just this month on, you know, taking action on poverty in Greater Manchester, poverty to prosperity for all. Um, and what does that mean? How do we get there? Michael, on the businesses you talk to and the public authorities, is this becoming something that's further and further up the agenda for people? Yeah, I think people want to look at a different way of doing business. I think Manchester has the opportunity as the economy grows, you know, in the city centre to spread a lot of that um, wealth outside of the city centre to those to that donut around it, which I think is something that concerns... A, ch- a challenge for the last 20, yeah. 20 years since the regeneration of the city centre yeah, started. And it's, and, it? and it's, it's not a challenge unique to Manchester either. But, you know, there is the, oppor- the opportunity to do things slightly differently. And 
there are a number of initiatives underway, such as the mayor has got a report that's going to be coming out soon, asking businesses to pledge to pay a living wage, not just the minimum wage. There are a few different levers that they could pull. Um, but there's also a bit of a groundswell of, um, of opinion emerging about just how people treat one another on a day-to-day basis. What about their obligations towards their suppliers, paying them on time? Um, what about their obligations towards particularly freelancers as a some of the key sectors, such as in the creative sector and in in the digital economy, businesses often rely on contractors. So what's that relationship like? And how can a city like this set a different standard for itself to actually treat people in that bigger, bigger supply chain and, and give them time for training, make sure that there's flexibility at work around, making sure that people with families can 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 prosper in those sorts of environments so there is a lot that can be done and there are a lot of conversations taking place but pretty much for the last 20 years it's been sort of growth at all costs but i think everybody's sort of hovering over the pause button a little bit at the moment so so how do we get the wealth that's obviously in the city center how do we get that to spread out how do we get this notion of inclusive growth as, as more and more development takes place Yes, I think there's both. It's both spreading out from Manchester city centre to our district centres um, and then at greater Manchester scale as well. How do we invest, spread it out to our town centres? And I think there's been a for a long time um, too much of a focus on a very sort of centralised economy um, and that that will trickle down to everybody elsewhere, which has an impact in terms of actually the fragility of our economic system um, and also in terms of how fragile our ecosystem is as well, because that will on lots of people traveling actually and high emissions to get to places and it actually reduces the flexibility as well um, because of that means people need to commute to a, in a kind of hub and spoke model less people can work locally can access local flexible jobs it also undermines then the sort of social infrastructure and care that that provides if you have local people who can be employed locally whether that's in paid employment or informal work and volunteering opportunities, they also reinvest in that local area. Um, they're more likely to care, to be able to connect people, signpost people. There's a local intelligence. So that also brings a huge amount of kind of hidden social care as well at a local level. So that's why we need to make the shift. Um, and there are, I think it is happening. I think um, people like Claire's, you know, who have been looking for a long time, a lot of the work in, in Preston around local economic wealth building. Um, it feels like the doors open more to, to their thinking um, and looking at how you know we use our anchor institutions like a university in terms of where they how they invest where their money goes um, and also then in terms of how we support more people to be local social entrepreneurs to set up small and medium-sized enterprises within their local communities um, which will really help spread wealth it will create a far more resilient economy um and it will include far more people um and effectively redistribute you know where the opportunities are and therefore where the income lies and that means that people spend that money locally as well so it stops it from seeping out or that sense of extraction um out elsewhere so there's a lot happening um in terms of how we 
do that differently looking at for example um very locally so if I look at Chalton you know really thinking about how we create a vibrant high street um, there's a lot of people that want to work from home how do you have local co-working spaces within the community and how do you make those places feel like an attractive place to work that means people shop they have their lunch locally they do all those sort of things um, and you know parents and carers can fit work around kids everything else um, and they're not jumping in their cars to drive to the city centre or to another part of Greater Manchester. One of the things on a, on a minor level that was, was quite opening uh, we were, eye-opening we were talking about this yesterday um, one of the big things that Tower Hamlets of Council have invested in after quite a lot of research Tower Hamlets for those who don't know also covers Canary Wharf so it's one of the most deprived areas in the country but next to possibly the richest area in the country and they have a problem not unlike the one that we have in the city centre which is there are an awful lot of jobs in the service sector, there are an awful lot of jobs in F&B within Canary Wharf. How do we get long-term unemployed, or the longer-term unemployed? How do we get mums who want to go back part-time to work in these, in these jobs where there is a need for jobs? One of the big breakthroughs they took was to actually discover that creating creches for in the evening was really crucial to allowing that to happen. And it was almost one of those crazy eye-opening things that nobody's really thought about a creche that wasn't nine to five or nine to six or or whatever actually having one that opened at six in the evening and ran through to midnight and then you could pick up your kids and then they'd they'd get the journey home and investing in that enabled all sorts of numbers of mums particularly asian mums which was which was a particular issue that they had with um long-term unemployment um to suddenly get jobs that they've never had access to before. So some of this is about thinking in slightly different ways, isn't it? Absolutely. Previously people yeah. haven't talked about. I know about. Mike will be desperate to come in, but just before we move on from that, because that was, so I actually chaired the event um, on looking at care specifically and how we support more people um, with parents, parents and carers of both genders, really, in employment and transport. So absolutely how that's all completely interconnected. And some great examples for any listeners who are interested in terms of what I've been doing in Birmingham as well. So Amy Kaur was there, was one of the speakers around what they've been doing at the impact hub there which absolutely goes to that point is how do you create more of these crashes and spaces that are um provide a diversity of opportunities within them in terms of community spaces really for different people to have their childcare and work and interact with others yeah it's about not taking a completely free market approach to some of these issues i was i was lucky enough to be at the new produce hall which has opened in stockport and it's got a number of different objectives one is it's brightened up a part of the of the of the town centre in Stockport, which has looked a bit tired, and there's been a number of initiatives over the years which have been you know really good that happen you know fourth Friday and every month it all sort of comes to life. But to have something that permanently changes the whole place starts to make a place. And the university I work for has got an artist studios there, so we've got a, a stake in it to a certain extent. But if one place looks good and people are drawn to it, then the place next door. That extols its value. But I was just talking to the guy that runs it, a fellow called Steve Pilling, who used to run the chop houses around town, used to be involved in that that business. Um, he was telling me some fantastic stories about how the kind of people that they've recruited and the kind of care that they need and the kind of help that they need back into paid employment. And it's not just a case of saying, right, turn up to work at this time, do this job and leave. Because often, you know, these are people who've had really tough lives. They might be suffering from all sorts of different uh, mental health issues related to their previous employment. You know, one guy was a, a former soldier. And so readjusting to civilian life has been really tough for him. But the employer's making an allowance and making a really targeted intervention to provide jobs for people in Stockport rather than just importing loads of catering staff 
you know, taking them out of the thriving great Manchester economy, um, which is great. Um, it, it does require a real laser focus on, a, on addressing two issues at once, which probably brings us on to the Green Summit it, as well. It, it does, in, in a bit, which is our main, main topic. I think one thing I'd like to say in, in defence of the free market, but also in defence of big business, because uh, that is my role, is I think this is when we talk and romanticise sometimes small businesses, particularly in terms of the retail sector and in terms of F&B. It's actually the bigger businesses, because they have the infrastructure that can do that work. Tesco, for instance, though we, we always hear about it destroying the high street and whatever. Tesco stores actually have a greater proportion of, of yeah. people with learning disabilities employed by them than any other store in the country does. Um, you know, pe people like Boots and B&Q yeah. deliberately employ people who are 60 and over, who are semi-retired, because they know they're very loyal, they're pretty intelligent, they're, they're good with a lot of the customers who come in through during the day who actually come in for that social interaction. What's interesting about a lot of those is they don't do it because of the legal requirement to do it, they do it because it's very good business yeah. for them. Um, we, have in, we have in this city, the St. John's area, um, the, the people who are building that, which is uh, an allied London project, part of what they did as that requirement was to say to the contractors, you need a certain percentage, you need to A, give quite a lot of money to rough sleeping appeals, you need to have a certain percentage of people who are employed who have experience of rough sleeping, and, and on and on and on. And so there are some really interesting pieces of legislation that come in. The Modern Slavery Act is, is, is a really interesting piece of legislation that's come in, and certainly for shocking companies into understanding what their supply chain is and their responsibility down their supply chain. But actually, some companies are doing this stuff mm. anyway mm. because either they think it's, it's really good business, mm. which some of them mm. absolutely do, or because they think that interconnection with their local mm. communities is a very, very important thing for them to have. Go on. Yeah. No, just an in defense of big business, one of the great flaws that I feel at the Center for Local Economic Strategies... Which is the claims that you... A very, a, a, a very, wholesome, a very wholesome and um, fair-minded think tank based in Manchester have this Preston economic model. In no, Nowhere in that very left of centre view of the world is the contribution to the Preston economy by the biggest arms manufacturer in, in Britain based up the road, BAE Systems, and their contribution to the economy of the wider Preston area. And you know, I've been very critical of their economic analysis, but this probably isn't the podcast for it. But <laughs> oh, I look forward to that one. Having <laughs> I mean, worked in the arms industry, yeah, that would be an interesting one. I think uh, what I'd say is it, it's not that one's more important than the other. No. We need all of them. Um, and I think it's the focus for me on looking at small, local enterprise, social enterprise is because we've had such a focus for a long time. It feels like big business. Big business have a huge role to play, as do our big anchor institutions. And what we've got to do is there's loads of them that absolutely get that that is good business. There's loads that have been leading the way. And sometimes we need to make them more visible. Actually, some of that good examples like you, you know, point to there is a great example. Let's make that far more kind of visible for people to see, to, to share and stop talking about corporate social responsibilities, this thing that people do on the side. It's about, do you pay a living wage? Do you look after those mm -hmm. that within the organisation that are carers, that are parents, that, you know, need yeah. flexibility for whatever reason? There's a whole host of reasons why. I, I, think, I, th I think there's one of the big changes has definitely been um, that rejection of the CSR day as something that you then take photos of to put on your annual yeah. report. And I, I'm not going to say it's completely gone because the number of, I got accused of being a terrible cynic um, for being quite critical of the number of companies that phoned us up in the three weeks leading up to Christmas saying, how do we feed the homeless on Christmas Day? And it's like, mm. you know, feed them on January the 27th or mm. rather than Christmas Day. That would mm. be a good thing. But actually what you're seeing in terms of conversations, we've done a couple of clean up days in the last few weeks. The number of 
employees that are now coming out to help clean up the mm. streets and they just see that as a natural thing to do to be and a number of companies are ha- absolutely happy to do that because mm-hmm. it's better for them to be cleaning the, the streets outside their own establishments than to be going off to clear a canal in Rochdale yeah. or whatever it might mm-hmm. be that's the classic CSR day yeah. experience yeah. and I think that is changing hugely. Yeah every piece of academic research into corporate social responsibility ultimately points to integrating it into the actual purpose of the business is always far more effective than just using it as the icing on the turd. Go back to why. Why are you in business if it's not doing good of some sort? And yeah, if you're, if it's supporting people to be happy, to connect, to give all those things to learn, you're going to have a happier workforce. So we're going to talk a little bit in in a second about, um, because we were talking about Jordan, we were talking about uh, local high streets we're talking about the city center so we're going to be talking about that in a, in a moment but um i think that last comment michael leads us on to businesses that don't play the game and businesses that um behave badly perhaps well, which is a concern slightly of yours at the moment. well there is that um i've done a couple of blogs recently about this one was about um businesses not treating their staff properly another one was around just the whole issue of fraudulent businesses not being held to account by our local media and how I feel that they're, you know, for all their structural difficulties and their understaffing, aren't able to police the boundaries of the business community in the way that um, maybe they did back in my day. And I'm, and I'm painfully aware of how, um, about how, how snooty I sound when I talk about things like that. But then the other issue is around business awards. Mm. And um, I think there's a genuine concern that a lot of business awards are just baubles handed out um, to their mates, to who can buy a table, that sponsors get them. And I highlighted one particular company who had won an award and then did a press release about winning the award and how proud they were while they were going through a liquidation process because things hadn't worked out for them. At some point, they could have turned around and said, do you know what, we should maybe withdraw from this. And I think it's incumbent upon... Frankly, I think there should be a public inquiry into the awards industry because some of them are good. And it's undermining the validity of those who are good of getting the rewards they deserve. And Because, again, I, I talk to loads of people in business and they tell me that this generation who've basically learned on the job since 2008 are the sharpest, most visionary, forward-thinking, resilient, and sometimes ruthless business people that they've ever come across. And actually, they deserve gold medals. Instead, you know, someone gives them a lump of glass that they also give to someone down the road who doesn't deserve it. So, yeah, maybe we should be looking at that a little bit more I, I as well. I think there's an interesting corporate model where event companies come along and they actually create awards and then invite... It's much like that classic of the number of letters you get every year saying, you could be in the chief exec's who's who if you spend £1,000 on an advert. There's a classic thing in the PR world, isn't there? If a PR company gets awards it probably means that you can't name any of their clients because yeah. they're actually too busy PRing themselves. Yeah. Going back to the way that companies treat their employees, I think this is this is something that um, we've just moved offices, as, as you're aware. One of the questions that came up then was, are we going to move towards lean working? Are we going to move towards hot desking? Are we going to move towards those trendy new things? And we talk, and obviously I talked to my staff and mm. no, my staff want desks where they can put up photos of their kids or photos of them. They want to come, I mean, we have to have staff that come in at particular times. And I think that's a really interesting one. I think quite often, and it's been interesting in LinkedIn, there's been quite a bit of turn against this. And I'm thinking one particular um, very good PR person in the city who's actually done quite a lot of blogs that have been attacking the whole culture of, yeah, I get into work at five o'clock in the morning and I work through and I I barely get any sleep and I read 3,000 books a day and, um, you know, I can work wherever and I can do this. 
And I think for a lot of people, this, this has become, I mean, it's quite a macho thing in a lot of ways, but it has also become a, isn't it great, this? Isn't it great what's come out of the Google complex and all of those things? No, the reason that Google has a swimming pool, the reason that Google has a cinema, the reason that Google, is because they don't want you to leave because they want you to work for 20 hours a day, 22 yeah. hours a day, and they don't care if you burn out. Google aren't members of CityCo, so I can, I'm allowed to say that. Um, and, I, and I think that's the bit that's missing a lot of the time, that yeah. actually the right of people, not necessarily just to work nine to five and then go home and enjoy family life, but actually to be able to have that open conversation about, I've got, you know, can we be a bit flexible here, be a bit flexible? that's great but when you actually then impose that flexibility take away people's security in an awful lot of ways and then sort of you know we've, we've talked a few times about going to this notion of not having fixed holidays um, and I think that's a really interesting thing until you actually have people who are very conscientious working for you who then suddenly go oh my god I can't, I'm, everybody's going to think I'm taking the piss if I take more than a week's holiday at that point and it has exactly the opposite effect yeah. and can be used in that way yeah I'm always feel really conflicted about awards and kite marks and all all those things really because I think appreciation is is massively needed and we need to do more and more to make visible and appreciate individuals or organizations that are doing good things you know we hear far too much mm. negative negativity around what people haven't done or what so and so it's not we need to do more of that but it's the way we do it and you know if it doesn't come with a level of accountability then we end up in a situation that Michael's talking about where, you know, it doesn't feel congruous, it actually feels fake, you know, it doesn't then count for anything, it just feels like this sort of charade, really, or veneer over the real stuff. Um, and if we don't recognise the contributions that everybody makes, if it feels like it is just that, there's one superhero and, you know, they do these things for everybody else, that is not the human model and the way that we want to work anyway. We're saying we're moving away from the alpha culture, you know, that doesn't work for everybody it's not a good business it doesn't get stuff done and um, we need to appreciate the contributions that absolutely everybody makes to make things work um, and awards that just award one person or one organization fail to do that and create that culture which I think is unhealthy um, so it does leave me often in feeling conflicted about the direction we go really how we acknowledge and appreciate but at the same time, recognise that actually it comes of its own downsides if there isn't the accountability. Yeah, we could go on about this all day. Yeah. It's, it's the deification <laughs> yeah. of kind of almost CEO culture. Yeah. On, on one hand, it's the, the issue. Wrong with that at all. No, no, the, the, the issue about um, <laughs> um, just as like an almost an Instagram version of somebody's life that celebrates getting on private jets and being in Marbella and oh. and all that six. It's another version of yes, the. We've just gone past Midland where the. The number of photos yeah. of people sitting on yachts, which you know are hired by the hour yeah. in order to take that shot. Yeah. Um, we, I, I just want to very quickly, because I think we should come back to this for a, for a major topic um, next time, possibly. Um, but obviously we've gone through Debenhams, which has just gone into administration. We've had a number of other shocks on the high street recently. Yeah. But equally, we've had a, had a number of success stories. Um, Chalton High Street entertainingly got a big feature in The Guardian. How does this work? Didn't actually mention the demographic of people in Chalton at any point during it. Um, I think let's have a quick spin around the table of, for you, what makes a successful high street? Eve? I think where it has a diversity of, of shops and services to meet the diversity of needs in the local area. So I think we have to think about, you know, how does it cater everybody? How is it a place that people know that they can go there as a destination and they can do their shopping, whatever their shopping looks like. They can have some entertainment. They can see people. They can, you know, linger around. It feels like a nice place to be. Um, and I think a lot of our 
district centres, high streets have maybe become monopolised by a particular type of business and we've lost some of the diversity and it's how we design back in the diversity and it is, you know, our independence. Chalton, absolutely, you know, what we sing about is we've got lots of local independent businesses and again, as I talked about before, that, you know, people like that um, sense of, of character of its local people often and it then helps build the local economy and a sense of a place that people care about. Um, and what was nice about that so mixed views on the article um partly because it didn't refer to maybe the usual suspects in Chalton um the businesses that you know most most of us often talk about um in some ways I thought that was a real strength to it because it's really important to see that there's different strengths to any high street to different people um the place just sit in the unicorn and go yeah and they get very easily could have talked about unicorn barbican foss you know that a lot of the, the Chalton bookshop there's a lot of places that you know some of us would refer to very naturally actually they referred to some different um businesses which you know obviously some traders then take offense to because they've not been mentioned you can't name every great business in Chalton um but I think it is interesting to see well who you know what appeals to different people and you have to try and cater for everybody in a local area and we're really keen to understand you know who are the people who live locally who don't currently shop locally um do some street audits and to really get a of who the people are getting in their car or on the bus and going elsewhere to shop and why what do they feel that the local area doesn't offer them and how can we change that and design it differently so you know there's a lot going on in Manchester we've had reports across district centres we're really looking at you know along with Chalton there's stuff going on in Wivington so there's the high streets um, funding that we've applied for there in Gorton in Wivenshaw you know I think there's a real need to look at how we invest in those areas and it does look different to city centre it has to be different in each one of those that are fairly unique they've got different needs different people um you can't apply the same plan um just as we're looking at you know at greater manchester wide at you know whether it's wigan berry oldham stockport you know our town centres and having a plan for reinvesting in those high streets it's about what works for each different area and that's pretty much the, the, the summary I would have given Eve and, and, it, and it's also very much in line with what colleagues at the university I work at in the Institute of Place Management they you know they do this for a living and they've done a lot of work recently with, with Jake Berry and the communities and local government department and they're looking at district centres in, in Stockport at the moment because it's not just about the town centre and it's that methodology that equally applies to everywhere else it's got ultimately to be a place that has meaning that actually is relevant to the people who live there or or, or who maybe come in to experience that area and it what we do know with absolute iron certainty now is the era of big box retail coming in to solve the problems of a local area and and creating footfall just by being there is over it might have a large a large part of man great of Manchester City Centre's success. But as you you know, in your opening question too was Vaughan, I think that's under question as well. So it has to be an economy that not only caters for the, the demogra- demographic of people who come in to shop, but also the people who increasingly live mm. closer mm. to where the, the high street is. And the purpose of those places has to be much more closely aligned mm. to how people live. Because we've got a big issue at the moment on housing, but we've equally got an issue on Empty shops. I mean, to my mind, there's a there's a simple problem to solve both of them, and actually, too many too many business premises are designated for retail space when actually they could be much more usefully deployed as somewhere for people to live. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree with that. And you know, it has to be a destination, doesn't it? So we're we're 
shops are closing because so many people are shopping online or they're going out to um, Trafford Centre and elsewhere. So how do you recreate it? It has to be a destination that people, place that people want mm. to be um, that stops them from just going online and, and thinking about how you create that. And that is placemaking as much as that is jargon. So I'm not yeah. quite sure. Yeah, we're place actually moving to place shaping. Place shaping. Place shaping. Well, if, yeah. only, if only we had the chief exec of a bid organisation around the table. Oh, Vaughan. Yeah, there you are. Excellent. And with that, we'll go to our corporate sponsorship <laughs> message. Now, a few weeks ago, there was a major Green Summit, the second annual Green Summit of the Mayors, I believe, which both my guests were at. I could say I wasn't invited, but I was invited. Um, so, guys, uh, quick summary. What was said, how's the city preparing uh, how is the city making itself more resilient, which is the thing that really interests me and my company? Um, what's happening? What's not working? Um, go on, I'll, I'll go first. Yeah. Um, apart from the uh, surprise intervention and surprise guest of Bez from the Happy Mondays, who in his first interaction, and he actually referred to a debate that I chaired a few years ago where he spoke on fracking, which for me was the longest 10 minutes of my life from the moment when I said, ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to our first speaker this evening, Bez. And then uh, he, he um, the thing is he did an impersonation of someone in a suit presenting at an academic conference on, um, on, on fracking, which I think wasn't the right thing to do. And... In, in, in front of a load of people who are interested in the issues around fracking. I will say he won that debate, by the way, because he was alongside Kevin Anderson from the Tyndall Centre, who is a genius. Um, but Bez was on stage talking with Andy Burnham about, you know, about his own personal journey and why he's you know, an eco-warrior now. And I thought that was interesting because it showed what the mayor wanted to do and who he wanted to engage with. It wasn't an academic conference about climate change. Um, there are plenty of them and academics can have an input into this and my university absolutely will. But the, for me, the real standout, yeah, it was it was bears and other ordinary people making their contributions about how they're making small changes in their lives, but also the kids and how passionate they were and how they were liaising with a lot of our of my colleagues who were talking about carbon literacy training and, and just how we can all make small incremental changes to our own lives to make a difference and then we can upscale that to the big big changes that we can all make in how we make infrastructure decisions about the kind of economy that we want to build the kind of problems that we want to solve in the world through using hydrogen fuel cells for using different materials and creating a green economy in greater manchester as well as a low carbon one that's that's sort of forced to make these changes by my stealth actually wanting to do that because it's not only the right thing to do, but it's actually good business as well. There's a real opportunity here as well in Greater Manchester. Eve. So I loved the fact it did actually start with young people. That was such yeah. the right call. Um, and I think, you know, most of the spaces I'm in now are pretty intergenerational. I'm with young people a lot. So I know how articulate and pan passionate they are about this subject and many other subjects but it was good to hear other people in the audience who maybe haven't had that exposure who I think were taken aback and opened their eyes so for me if nothing else happened if it enabled a few people to realize that actually they are surrounded by people who are passionate about this and want to do something about it for all the right reasons that's great so the sense of a mix of people in the space was fantastic you know it had its different um sort of breakout areas and 
and stalls and it did feel as though it was acknowledging that we do all have a role to play which of course is our key message at Man City yeah. Council in terms of how we all play our part um, and it has to be you know there has to be absolute changes to um, to the rules you know as uh, Greta's said very clearly um, you know the rules have to be changed <laughs> everything needs to change and it has to start today and the local authorities and the combined authority have a big role to play in leading that um, you know our big businesses our big anchor institutions have a huge role to play um, in terms of you know they contribute a lot to our current our carbon footprint but you know the 2.8 million of us all have to be doing something too and we have to get on and do it now uh, I think you know what I got out of the day was more actually I spent more time just talking to different people that I needed to catch up on very much trying to connect some of the dots between things that we're trying to do um, both at a local area so you know able in Chalton to really we are having conversation about you know how we electrify Chalton to how do we create more charging points could more people to get electric vehicles um I might jump in and say that's not the way after our last conversation um you know talking about public transport at a bigger scale um what are some of the things we can do about our, our homes the way we travel uh flight is a big one I'm sure we'll talk about you know greening greening our local areas and how we connect them so within a local area I was talking to some um, of our faith leaders who are really keen to see what they can do as part of the our faith our planet um, and really connect them with what then schools are doing how we build that carbon literacy between our schools our local businesses our local places of faith our communities and really accelerate that awareness and awareness of of action and I think where people feel that they can see around them stuff is happening and they're part of that because for too long it's felt like this big scary thing in the distance that people have been felt um, frozen and unable to take action um, and I would recommend I have without apologies got with me the Friends of the Earth Manchester Friends of the Earth uh, Greater Manchester Summit booklet that they produced for the day which I would I'm sure it's all online you know is a great summary really across you know transport being plastic free homes food the big stuff, the stuff we need to do at Greater Manchester Scale and how you can encourage, you know, our political leaders and our leaders to be bold and brave and make the sometimes very difficult radical changes that are needed, how we can do that in our workplaces and organisations and how individually we can, you know, really make a difference. I guess, uh, am I being slightly devil's advocate? No, I'm not. Oh, go on. Um, I think one of, one of the issues is, I mean, you were talking about that activism and obviously having young kids I know how often they'll come home from lessons and go blah 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 about climate change and about plastic and various other things um until they find out that bamboo straws aren't as good for drinking coke through as plastic straws were but anyway um but I think there is a fear and I think it's a justifiable one that the constant blaze of messages about the destruction of the planet in various different ways, actually becomes a negative, in much the same way as the Daily Mail health stories about you can get cancer from this, and oh, now you can get cancer from that, and now you can get from... You know, when we see on... And I know we wanted to, to do a different different one on, on sort of youth action, um, but I, I did see one of the uh, slogans on a, on a banner at, uh, I think, the strike last Friday or the Friday before, which said, said something along the lines of, you'll die of old age, I'll die of climate change, which is nonsense. Because anybody living in a Western society, in a developed society, is very unlikely. I'm far more likely to die of something that isn't old age than somebody is to die of climate change. And I worry that 
certainly some of the messages about um, the likely impacts, particularly in developed societies, are wrong. I think certainly the the fact that Britain actually has a really good record over the last few years of, of shutting down coal-powered fire stations and therefore reducing climate emissions just isn't isn't particularly got out. So there's a feeling there's doing nothing. But the practical the practical place that ends up in is actually a sort of stasis through fear because you sort of think this is too big, the world is going to die, everything's going to be destroyed. Whereas actually when you look at certainly the economic analysis that's coming out, that's not the case for us. There are other issues. Yeah, I, sort of t- I hear what you're saying, but I thought the messaging that I got from the Green Summit, yeah, yes, Friends of the Earth, um, and Andy actually read out their, their leaflet at the beginning because they want to hold him to a higher to a higher level of commitment beyond the Paris Climate Change Agreement. There is a limited amount that a city can do as a, over and above a nation state, but Manchester has that ambition. And it's about a certain amount of realistic political signalling I mean, you could be critical of that and say, oh, it's just virtue signalling, but a certain amount of political direction of travel that says, hold on a minute, we're not going to commit to this. Things like the the statement about fracking. And it's about what's realistic, like the, the stuff we talked about in a previous podcast about the clean air penalty for polluting vehicles. That has had a tangible positive impact if it's done in enough cities to actually put the diesel car business sector out of business and for a real focus of attention to develop cleaner ways of, of transport whether that be electric or hydrogen and they were they, they were exhibited at the green summit all sorts of different vehicles outside but also to get people on their bikes to be walking and for lots of different policy focuses in lots of different areas, not just to put it in a box that's marked green, that some troublesome councillor over there bleats on about all the time, no present company accepted, Eve, but actually for it to be part of everybody, every everyone's day-to-day life about the decisions that, that we can take. And yeah, we sign up to all of that as a university. We're really proud to be one of the greenest universities in the country. We've been, I've been talking to colleagues earlier today about what we do for power generation in the future and how that, you know, the kind of power supply that we can have on site and also the, the, the state of the new buildings that we're putting up, wherever they may be. So two two things. One, coming back, I think it's really important we speak the truth and I think maybe that hasn't been done enough. So I think sometimes for fear of spreading fear, we haven't actually acknowledged that climate breakdown is happening now. It is happening. Um, there are things that we're already going to have to adapt to that are beyond us saving. And the call is, you know, it's a dramatic call. And some people feel we've not gone even far enough in Manchester, Greater Manchester. You know, we do have, it is based on the climate experts. We do have this fantastic amount of knowledge and skills and will, you know, at all levels in Greater Manchester. And I think we need to celebrate that. So, you know, the Tyndall Centre, we've gone with their carbon budget, which means that we have to halve our emissions in the next five years. That's a big ask and we don't know how we're going to get to carbon zero at the minute um by 2038 so we've set that target hoping you know believing that is the realistic target that we can attempt to try and reach but that still relies on technology that we don't currently have to be able to achieve that so it is a big task and i think people you know it's great i think we do have to say to people that it is happening now we have to be true about that but then we have to give them the examples just as we talked about there around you know good business highlight stuff is happening you know actually people are doing good things to make a difference at all levels um 
we hear a lot in terms of the city council that you know we've not committed enough not done enough I think we need to change and do more in terms of our communications because I think actually we're doing a lot more in terms of the climate change board bringing people together bringing experts together listening to you know we've got lots of activists and people that have been in climate change for a long time who are advising us on what we can do um so there are businesses of anchor institutions who are doing some great stuff and actually we've got quite a buoyant green economy growing in Manchester and Greater Manchester that again I don't think people are aware of or making visible so it's it's making all of that so people can see it and it's a good thing and it absolutely as Michael said it's just like our good business you know good business involves absolutely sustainable business um, and we talked about Michael talked about one donut before in terms of you know how we make sure that we're spreading think about the economy across our district centres and there's the other donut which is you know, we can't ever look at the economy without looking at, you know, the environment. And those two have to be looked at together. Um, and I would absolutely point any readers to Kate Rowe's The Donuts, you know, if they're interested no more, because I think we have to be honestly looking at, you know, what are our resources and how are we doing everything to assure that we are regenerating our planet at the same time. I think there has been a really interesting change. And I think, I think one of the things that is slightly frustrating is fairly obviously groups like Extinction Rebellion, their job is to get PR, their job is to get marketing. So what what we're actually seeing is, you know, when they close the tubes as they were doing today or when they they shut the trams a couple of weeks, you sort of sit there going, well, logically speaking, that's not actually the people that you should be shutting, but I understand why you're trying to get that PR message out. It's not necessarily always a PR message that's nice and balanced about the actual things that are being done and the other things that are going on. But that's that's activism throughout the throughout history. I think one of the really interesting things that out of the Green Summit was that it was the first time that we really saw as a business community a lot of emphasis not just put on the we must reduce emissions, we must do this, we must do that, but actually how do we make our city, how do we make our environment more resilient because this is going to happen. And I think that is really quite an interesting change and the sort of the ignition fund and the ideas of okay well actually you know if we're seeing more flash floods that may not be to do with climate change it may be because because we've torn down an awful lot of trees and certainly what we've seen in the city center is the combination with the impact of cuts and processes post cut the reason we've had some floods in the city center is actually because drains aren't cleared as well as they have been in the past because of reductions in numbers of employees it has nothing to do with the particular particular event but all those things are bundled together and i think for the first, so i actually think that message which to work with work with businesses and resident, residents' communities about actually how do you make a city more resilient, which may be about the, the, sl- the, the slower changes of climate change, but is also to do with how would you deal with a power outage? How would you deal with... I mean, there's a really fascinating one that has been thrown up in a couple of conversations recently, which I probably shouldn't do because I'll probably get in trouble, but with 20,000 new flats in the city centre, nobody has looked at the sewage runs in the city centre. Where is that sewage going to go? And how is that going to, you know, and those sort of things, which is about making a city resilient, uh, which is, you know, part of what we're increasingly doing as an organisation is to talking to people about, yeah, you need to think about a terrorist event. Yeah, you need to think about a power outage, but you also need to think about this stuff, the mm. slow changes over the next decade, two yeah. decades, and what that's going to mean for your company. Yeah, my my late great friend, Walter Menzies, who sadly died recently, um, real big face on the for sustainability and a great voice for sustainability in the in the northwest over the years you know in his beautiful scottish brogue he'd always say what if this is a load of old bollocks it's still worth doing <laughs> yeah it's still worth doing because you know the, the the benefits are everywhere and i would say that um we've sworn three eve, times now eve, you have eve managed to get through the whole of that without mentioning bikes however 
Ooh. Michael didn't. So um, we did have a slight bet beforehand about that. But <laughs> I do <laughs> have to. You said you were playing devil's advocate. I do have to come back on one other point, which was, you know, su- suggestion <laughs> <laughs> that we in, you know, the UK are more protected and yes we have to play our part recognizing as a developed country you know that we add a far greater proportion to the carbon footprint than other places do um and inequality means that other places have to have the chance to catch up um but also we have to recognize that okay Climate will have an Im- across the world. It'll have an impact in some places, which means huge masses of, of migration will follow from that, which would have a huge impact on on our country. Um, and we can't. There are no borders. There are no boundaries for this. You know, if it affects some people in some part of the world. My response to that would be that comes back to us and we have an absolute responsibility and have to recognise that will have an impact. We're completely interdependent. So I don't think we're protected. Whilst you might think we're on a little island, <laughs> I'm afraid it will it will affect all of us and we need to crack on. And it does make for better life, as Michael said, for everybody, really. Thank you. Which is yeah. the point where we should leave it. <laughs> <laughs> And finally, our quick one-minute rounds. Uh, just to lighten the mood slightly. Um, it might get very serious, I think. Uh, Michael, one thing that you'd change around about Manchester, if you could, yeah. if you were given that supreme power. Yeah, I'd get rid of business awards. All of them. I'd get rid of them all and start again and say, no more. And the Business of the Year award goes too. Because I think they've become completely devalued. I know I've spoken about this on this podcast before, um, but but I think we need a, a royal commission or at least a mayoral commission into these in order to promote excellence for people to sign up to it, for Manchester to become a resilient, successful and rewarding city should reward actually true endeavour, not just the, lo- the loudest shrill in the room. So yeah, I'd like to ban all business awards. That saves so much time in terms of writing... Award applications and accreditation things. Eve! God, I'd never go on Room 101. I've got too many things. I think what's just risen to the top in the last 30 seconds has been it would be around um, caring and a very radical approach to how we value the role of parents and carers, actually, um, and stop that from being one such a gendered thing and something that isn't seen to contribute towards our economy. Um, So that would be the one dramatic change that I would make now. Brilliant, they're all going under a minute here. So I'm gonna, I will take well over a minute and ramble on. No, I won't. Um, when I first came into this job, I was asked by a journalist who we all know around this table very well, what's the one thing I would change about Manchester? And I said at that point, which was a decade ago, I would cancel Coronation Street uh, because of the image it gave of Manchester. Um, I have to say, that is now... Ch- I don't watch, obviously, because, you know, this is the thing you have to say now, I don't watch television, but Coronation Street isn't what it was in terms of the negative but however the second thing i said was i would ban spitting on the street and i would still ban spitting on the street do people do that yes they do, do they looking really? at the state of the street it's disgusting and uh, and um i think at the time i suggested snipers on rooftops but we probably have enough of those anyway back to the second yeah. subject um best book about manchester or around manchester Right, Michael's I'm, got a list of forty-eight books, yeah. so he's got only three, got three of which seconds. I've written. But yeah. no, no. Well, I'm not, not including ones you've written yourself. No, um, I I really like Dave Haslam. Um, he's, he's a funny, complex, prickly character. We occasionally fall out for reasons I can never quite remember, but um, I do love Dave's account, Manchester, England. But actually, I really, really loved 
his last book, Sonic Youth Slept on My Floor, because Dave's a few years older than me and he was a student before I came to Manchester. And it kind of evokes the feeling of a city that I was looking to be part of rather than one it's not a memoir, it's, it, it's an era be, before me. But actually, for fiction, and I do like... One book. <laughs> no, nah, I mean, but come on. Is uh, Black Moss by David Nolan, which is a brilliant Manchester noir crime fiction by a guy who usually writes about music, but it, it, it's great, and I really recommend it. Excellent. Dave Haslam, of course, was interviewed around Sonic You Slept on My Floor on a previous podcast, so check that mm. out. Eve... What sprang to mind for me was actually Elidor, Alan Garner. Oh, that's brilliant, yeah. Um, because I think that's probably the first book I remember reading as a kid that was about Manchester. So, um, yeah, for all our younger readers, or older readers, read that. Um, and again, you know, it was it was in the 1960s uh, in Manchester at a time of great change. Um, I, Yeah. It was pretty grim, but it, I loved it. I was a big reader of fantasy at the time. So, and I think as a second one, this feels a bit of a cheat because I've not actually finished reading it. Um, would be the Peterloo Massacre, just because it's so topical. I think everybody should be reading one of the many books actually about Peterloo, um, many of which have been published in the last year. Everyone choosing two, so I won't feel so bad about choosing two. Yes, Alan Garner, probably not as well known as he certainly was in the 70s and 80s when there were a lot of TV adaptations but um, those, that group of people who are into weird Britain and fairy Britain and fantasy Britain all know Alan Garner extremely well and uh, was a wonderful wonderful writer. I'm going to do two as well then. So um, my fiction is Vert by Je- Jeff Noon um, which in a similar way to Elidor, I think, is a science fiction uh, account of really the rave generation in, in Manchester. Um, and he wrote uh, a number of subsequent novels that were all set, many of them visiting the Hume Crescent and various other areas uh, around psychedelia or drug taking and uh, were quite wonderful. The other one, a uh, book I got a preview copy of uh, about three weeks ago, uh, which is John Savage's new work, This Searing Light, The Oral History of Joy Division, which, frankly, if you don't read John Savage, you should read John Savage because he is the greatest cultural pop culture writer in the world, I, I would say. It. There aren't many people. That, Greel Marcus probably is the, the only other person that's as good as him. Uh, but there, you would think, and I certainly thought, there was nothing new to say around Joy Division. I hate the fact that we are constantly referring to the Hacienda and talking about a, a museum of music that might all just focus on music that hasn't been around for 50-odd years. But it's still a wonderful, wonderful book. Are you still talking? I am still talking. It's my podcast! <laughs> Michael, God. I, 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 just, I just love the fact that John Savage has beaten Paul Morley to it. Yeah, to write the book about Joy Division. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you all very much. Uh, that's it for this month. This will uh, You'll be listening to this slightly after the May elections, when everything may have changed, of course. Uh, we'll be back with you in about three or four weeks' time. Thank you for listening. Thank you.